Hey, my name is Drew. I'm glad I'm here with you today. I am actually glad. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope, and occasionally I get the chance to preach, and I'm, I'm really excited today. I want to uh, introduce myself a little bit in case you don't know who I am. Um, first, it's very important that you uh, meet these ladies. These are the three beautiful ladies I spend most of my time with. Uh, my wife, Kelly, and our daughters, Zoe and Zariah. Um, we are looking forward to a fun summer, exciting summer running around as soon as the weather gets warm. Everything changes in our house because uh, our kids go outside and it's quieter a little bit. <laughs> and, and we all get to go outside and run around, but it's uh, different um, and, and smellier. Our children quickly get quite smelly and sweaty and cannot wait for a summer of fun in the sun. Today we are in the big finale of this, this saga, this battle with God's people and Egypt. The Great Story of the Red Sea. This is an actual photograph from the Red Sea that uh, we were able to get our hands on. Added color to it, of course. It was in black and white originally, but um, look at those huge walls. So ridiculous. Um, This story, hopefully you kind of are aware of it. This is a very common story that's actually used. We're going to look at that in a second. Uh, All over the world as the story of tyrants being overthrown uh, by the people. Uh, people who are oppressed and enslaved, being uh, overthrowing or becoming free uh, throughout history. It's a story of Pharaoh still pursuing, again, changing his mind, pursuing God's people, even though he had let them go after the plagues, and uh, then being cornered by the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, and God doing this incredible thing of moving the waters so that God's people could be free, and not only freeing them, but then taking out the Egyptians, as they pursued them. A classic, great, great story. I, I want to share with you, I am very capable of teaching this. If you're wondering, I just want so you know my, my accreditations. This is a picture of me in junior high. Uh, first, I'm a pretty incredible basketball player, as you can tell. I can dunk uh, on a laundry hamper hoop in my, uh, in my room. But this is the thing I want you to see. If you look up in the left corner... Even in seventh grade, I was making diagrams of this passage. <laughs> that's, a, that's a study of the passage in the Red Sea, the people crossing over. Uh, my children let me know that looks like a kindergartner drew it, is what they told me. Thanks, kids, these kids today. Um, to the Red Sea. This is, like I had said, a story that uh, we see people use throughout history. And I'm going to look today at American history. We have used this not just casually, but very intentionally that we've used it throughout history as a way to call uh, people together that there, there could be a way. That there, there was this story about these people a long time ago and they were kind of backed into a corner and unable to be free and it happened. And we use it as this great symbol of freedom when, when all the odds were against you. And so the first place we actually see it, uh, fitting that we got to hear uh, about Hamilton today, or hear from Hamilton, is, our, is, the, is during the Revolutionary War. The Americans actually used this story often as a centerpiece uh, uh, against the British. They would call, there are actually old songs, poetry, where they would call the king Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh of England, as a way, and call themselves the people of God, uh, the Israelites. And so the first time, what you're looking at, the first time Benjamin Franklin and uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson got together and said, we need a seal that will represent our country, that will show who we are. Uh, And so the first rendition of this, 
was this image, which is an image of fire and a cloud and God's people, the story of the Red Sea, the Egyptian people being drowned in the, in the water with their chariots. This could have been the seal of America. This, I mean, this story is at the forefront of what they're thinking. With this model, rebellion to tyrants is obedience uh, to God. Uh, this story was used throughout. In many, there's many old speeches in the Revolutionary War where they would call to them to free us from the Pharaoh. Um, and so as history went on in America, um, that actually got turned on, on some of those people who actually were part of freeing us from England. Uh, and then during the Civil War, uh, many slaves and many people in the North used it uh, again as the Pharaoh were the people in the South, and the Confederates, and they were trying to free themselves. That actually was an even closer connection. And many, many songs, spirituals were written at that time, uh, which used the language uh, of the Exodus. Um, and so for, since this is from Godal Moses, a very famous spiritual, when Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go, oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. So, the God, so God said, go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell all the, the pharaohs to let my people go. So they use this, this story is at the center of, of people's understanding of their own situations. Um, and use this throughout time. And then actually, uh, uh, freedom did come for slavery in the U.S., uh, partially, and they were segregated. And at one point during civil rights, this story again emerged as a, uh, a very important story in the civil rights movement as we were fighting, they were fighting for segregation. And when it finally happened, Martin Luther King Jr. said this in a speech right after it happened. Many years ago, the Negro was thrown into the Egypt of segregation, comparing segregation as Pharaoh, as Egypt, but through a world-shaking decree by nine justices of the Supreme Court of America, the Red Sea was opened and the forces of justice marched through to the other side. This is a story that, that uh, we all connect to all of time, whether it's a, a very large, big, very serious uh, issue that we see uh, the, an enemy and a people, uh, people maybe being oppressed, enslaved, and trying to gain their freedom, they connect to, to God's people in this, in this moment. Um, or sometimes I think just in our own lives in a rough time, sometimes we think, God, get me through this Red Sea. And that's what I want us to look at today. What is the significance of this passage past just, it's an incredible story of, uh, of bad people and good people getting free, right? How, how do we see this as bigger? Because it's bigger and there is a bigger enemy that has been defeated in a, in a way that has been made by God that's even more important than just historically people getting free from slavery in Egypt. So that's, that's our hope today to look at where we're at right now um, in, our, in, our, in Exodus uh, really quickly so we can catch you up in case you're not sure. God's people were in Egypt. Originally, they were there connected with Joseph, who they actually had good relations with the upper management. New management came in, and they uh, did did not like the people or did not see them the same way, and they became slaves to them, servants to them, really uh, were their workforce um, in Egypt. And so through all of that time, for many years they were oppressed, enslaved. God brings about a man named Moses uh, and says, I'm going to use you to actually free these people. So Moses asked Pharaoh, he just says, hey, free my people. God says so. Pharaoh says no. Obviously, 
that would make sense to Pharaoh. God brings many, many, many plagues down. So he shows off his power to the Egyptian people, says, I'm powerful, actually goes through some of their main gods' powers and kind of shows he is more powerful than those gods, uh, continues to show his power that he is God over and over, ten times actually, which ends with what we call the Passover, which is a time where God says, I want you to take a lamb, put its blood over your door, kind of weird, uh, but that will be a signal to me that you're my people, and when death comes, it will pass over your home, and the other firstborns of people and animals will die. And when that happens, it's the, it's the end for Pharaoh. He is done with this God and his people. That, I mean, that's a lot of things in a row happening, and he's, he's done. And so he says, leave. So God's people, it seems now, after ten plagues, are free. They actually leave. They're free from their ruler. Um, and they're walking out of Egypt. This is it. This is like what they've been dreaming of and hoping for. And Moses leads his people out of Egypt. And that's where we're at in Exodus. Uh, so let's get rolling here. We're going to roll through this a whole, over a whole chapter of Exodus. So we're going to just keep it rolling. So hold on. Tight, if you have a Bible, we're in Exodus 13, uh, verse 17, or on your phone, or just follow along. We'll have all the verses right up here. Um, on the screen. All right. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up from Egypt ready for battle. So the scene is that they're leaving Egypt. God is leading them, and the first thing he does is knows these people will turn around if they have opposition. So I'm going to lead them on the long way, not the short way, because if they face war right now, they will, and they have the opportunity to turn around, they will probably turn around and go back into slavery. They'll turn around to their old slave master, Pharaoh, and return. And so he leads them this other way around knowing his people, through the desert, towards the Red Sea. Um, and it says, actually it says they're ready for battle. The term there actually would mean like in an orderly way. We don't wanna, I don't want you to get the impression that the Israelites were like all geared up, like knowing they were about to fight or have to fight. They, they just were leaving in a very orderly way. It'd be a phrase that would be like kind of in military rank order. But they're just, they're ready to get out. They're rolling out um, along this desert road by the Red Sea. And just to, uh, to be helpful... The Red Sea, this is kind of one of the routes that we think they might have taken, the red line. They start up here on the left. Um, and the red line here is one of the options that we think we're not exactly sure which way they went. The cities mentioned aren't necessarily there now. But it actually isn't the Red Sea, Red Sea we know. That we think it's like a very deep Red Sea where the walls are like towering, like we'd see in that picture that I showed you um, from the movie. Uh, it actually probably is around these things we call the Bitter Lakes, or kind of a marshy area in that area. So there's, there still is water, they can't cross it, but we don't necessarily know what it is. The term actually means sea of reeds. So wherever this kind of reedy area is up there. But that's where they're, they're walking. They've walked just a little ways um, around, out of the way so that they didn't encounter a battle. And God has his people, um, he's leading his people away um, from Pharaoh. But God definitely has a, a plan in all this. An interesting, like a side note we get right here, as they're walking away, and it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid 
when you must, uh, <clears throat> and you must carry my bones up with you from this place. So this is, this is back to Genesis. We see this happen in Genesis. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, like we just heard. God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. This was like Joseph's last thing we hear about Joseph. Hey, when I die, carry my bones. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So that happened many years later. They finally get freedom, and they remember to bring up his bones, which just practically is kind of gross. But they're doing it, right? This is important, though, because over and over we're going to hear the same important theme in this. There is belief that God is with them and is faithful and will bring them out of slavery. And Joseph, dying, knows one day God will do this. And when he does, bring my bones with you. I want to be buried one day in the promised land. And they do. We see that. They continue to carry Joseph's bones with them. It's, just help, it's really helpful to know there's, that's, a, that's part of their legacy and their history of their people. There are people in their legacy that do know that God is faithful with them is going to bring them out of this. And so it's a great reminder of us that even before this happened, before they're leaving, before the Passover and the plagues, Joseph was thinking already, one day God will do this. Um, it does, which is, which is really incredible. Okay, after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham at the edge of the desert. By the day, they went ahead, went ahead of them was a, a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and at night, a pillar of fire. So whether day or night, they had a thing they could see that guided them so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by left by night left its place in front of the people. It never left them. So this cloud and this fire are symbols we see throughout the Old Testament of God's presence. This cloud and this fire, whether we see it in the burning bush in his presence or we see clouds on mountains that Moses goes up and, and is in the clouds and the mountains or the clouds, you can't touch the clouds because they're God's presence. Um, we see that all the time as a symbol or an image that God brings. But the important thing here, again, as we just heard from Joseph, Joseph believed that God would not leave you and bring you out of there. And then we see the next thing we hear is, and God did not leave them. Always with them. We even get the, the last little phrase of this, that he never left its place. So it's a, it's a very important thing that God wants in front of his people He's literally in front of his people, but he wants always in front of them. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. I have not left you. I am with you. And we continue to move on. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. So they apparently were ahead a little bit. Now turn back and encamp near Pi Hathroth between Migdal and the sea. And they're going to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think. Oh, he tells them to do this so that Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. So he has them move this way in order to uh, encourage Pharaoh to also think that something is happening. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Lord. So the Isra uh, Israelites did this. Uh, Peter ends here, has, I think it's interesting to know this. He, he says, he devises what by common military standards is a foolish strategy. March the Israelites towards the sea, leaving there no escape route. Then entice Pharaoh to follow the Israelites so he and Pharaoh can engage in one final battle. 
It's so good. It's like a trailer for a movie. One that will show Pharaoh who is truly God. God knows what will entice Pharaoh to these people. He knows, oh, they can't get away. We got them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them go in this way. So, they got, so God actually puts his people in what we would call a foolish situation so that he can bring glory to himself and show who is really God. All right. Then the king of Egypt was told, Pharaoh was told the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. Right before this, he said, get out of here. And now he's saying, wait a second. He says, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So what's he concerned about? He's concerned that our workforce has left. What will we do? What have we done? So he had this chariot, his chariot made ready, and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officials over all of them. All, all, all. All of their army, the whole army. Not just the army, but also the 600 best chariots. If you're wondering, 600 best, they're also there. And they're going to charge in and take out these, Egyptians, these uh, Israelites. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he pursued the Israelites and were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops. You keep saying all, like, to make sure we know. All of them are there. Pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Hathroth, opposite Baal Zephon. So we know God's plan was to go to this place. Pharaoh will pursue you there because he thinks you have no way out. Pharaoh boldly gets his entire army together, and they go to pursue them. In this moment, I would guess, bold and confident because they're about to do battle, or more like maybe just capture a bunch of Israelites who just left them, who just walked through the desert, who aren't really armed, and they're cornered by the sea. I would assume their, their attitude going into this, that we are confident we're about to take these people back and put them back into service in our community, right? In our, in our country. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. Absolutely, you'd be terrified. They cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord, said to Moses, said this to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? So their first response is a sarcastic, you know, call to Moses. Oh, there weren't enough graves in Egypt? So you just brought us out here in the middle of nowhere to die? You can feel, you can feel the attitude is dripping. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. I don't think that's exactly how they said it. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So they see the army coming, right? The dust is rolling. The chariots are running through them. They look behind them. There's a sea behind them. They're cornered. There's no way out. Their response is, you brought us here to die, Moses. Right? What do they need? They need a wall hanging that says God won't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> if, they, if they just had Pinterest, 
and could slap this up on their walls, it'd be a different story, right? They could scroll through their inspirational, uh, uh, non-biblical Christian things. This has to be in the Bible somewhere. They don't have this. They're stuck between a sea and an army. And in practicality, in regular life, this should be the end of the story. There shouldn't even be, there should be one sentence of like, and then they captured him and they were slaves again. There there shouldn't even be much of a battle to this because it's it's an enormous army. The best the Pharaoh has, all of them would just capture them, haul them back to Egypt because they they need them, right, for their work. Um, And so they're upset, right? So how does Moses respond to these people? Moses answers the people. Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So Moses gives them a sign. and says, God will give you more than you can handle. Stay calm and he'll fight for you. The actual, in the actual uh, passage here, this phrase, do not be afraid, stand firm, is actually a, pre- a pretty gentle way to say it. The phrase would be more like, Shut your mouths. Stop. God will fight for us. You, you're going to give me like a sarcastic, oh, you brought us here to die? Where are our graves? I'll give you a like. What are you doing? This is how this works. God gives us more than we can handle all the time, and God fights for us. He's with us. We forget, we forget that, right? Let, let me take a second because this is... Um, Touchy subject for me. Um, this phrase, God will give you more, will not give you more than you can handle. I, I think it's connected to a passage actually uh, in the New Testament that we see that talks about not giving you more temptation than you can handle, which is actually in reference to sin. Um, him saying he's not gonna, he's not gonna, God's not gonna like give you so much, so much temptation that you're gonna sin. So God doesn't want us to sin because sin is really just turning away from Him. He's not gonna say, I'm gonna make you turn away from me. But sinning is different than stuff that's hard. And most of, my, most of my suffering is stuff that's hard, not necessarily sin. So I would say, I'm going to go to my mom's house and cross that out and say, and paint in will. God will give you more than you can handle. He does every day. I woke up today and my brain somehow functioned and... I sat up in bed and brushed my teeth and took a shower and all these things moved and it was incredible and my heart's beating and I'm not doing any of that. And that's just me like sitting up and moving around, let alone uh, all the other millions of moments and enormous things that God does over and over and over again that I don't do. But I quickly, very, very quickly become a person who who just thinks I deserve something or thinks that God should have given me something or think I actually did it. In fact, this morning on my drive-in, um, left a little earlier than normal, so I get ready for sermon stuff, and I'm, I drove like a couple blocks from my house, and my car made a weird noise, and it like went, and I was like driving like this, uh, and I pulled into a Cub parking lot, and I, and I thought, okay, I'm, I was driving to tell you about how faithful God is, and how he will give you more than you can handle and how you should trust him. 
And so my response was, Jesus, what are you doing? Did you bring me to this Cub parking lot just to kill me here and bury me? I said, come on, Jesus. I got this sermon I got ready for, and I got to get there. And what are you doing? And then I thought, I'm getting out. I'm going to fix this. Jesus isn't going to fix this. I got to get out. I don't know what else. Like, I'm going to fix my car in the Cub parking lot. I don't even know what's happening to it. Uh, so, I, so I didn't. I just sat there and, and revved the engine, and then all of a sudden it worked. And I drove in, and I came in. I had called someone to say, hey, I might be stuck. Can you come pick me up? So I called him and said, you don't need to pick me up. I got in, and he said, uh, oh, you got in? That's great. I said, yeah. I just revved it up, and eventually I figured it out. And he was like, oh, cool, you did it. And I was like, I did it. I solved the problem. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to tell people that they probably can't handle things. God actually does it all. That's all quick, right? We, we think, how much trouble does that get us in? Because we think, I'm the one who's going to solve this. Uh, my wife and I had, um, we, we used to live in Fargo, and we, had, we thought that's where we were going to settle, and that was going to be for, forever our home. We bought a house, we had jobs, we loved it there, and we started feeling a call to come here to Hope um, to be an intern. So I, w- I wouldn't get paid, but I would work full-time, and uh, I... My wife didn't have a job. We'd sell our house and move back into an apartment or maybe into someone's basement. Or uh, It felt like a, a kind of a crazy move. And I remember laying in bed and us talking and saying, well, God won't give me more than I can handle. And I could not handle that. So that can't be God's plan. I like, had decided, like, if the thing seems hard and risky, it must be something I can't handle. And God knows me and he knows, like, Drew can't handle that. And it started creeping in. Like, I actually was making decisions off of thinking, as long as I can do it, God is cool with it. Not thinking, oh, it actually is about me understanding who God is and knowing he can do these things through me. Thankfully, through friends and through praying, and God made, made it clear, like, I got you, I'm with you. You're not thinking right. Um, I moved on. All right, that's my Pinterest wall sign rant. Let's move on. I'll keep going. <laughs> Moses answered the people. All right, now we're to 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, so the people have talked to Moses. Moses talked to the people. Now the Lord comes, talks to Moses. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land. It will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his armies, through his chariots, his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I will gain glory through, through Pharaoh and his chariots, his horsemen. So the plan still is, I'm going to get glory. I, I, I want the eyes to be on me. He's God, so the eyes should be on him. Uh, and so he tells them their, his plan. This is my battle plan. Um, he's going he's gonna to actually control the seas. I think it's, it's helpful to understand, this is a thing we see throughout Scripture, is God controlling seas to show his power over something that people can't control. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you think you can handle it, people don't control weather. Whether it's, like the, uh, it's like if you ever watched the news when there's going to be a hurricane, there's always, they always interview a dude who's like boarding up his house, and he's like, we're going to fight this thing! And he's like out there, and you're like, oh, that's awesome. You can't fight a hurricane, man. <laughs> like, it's going to win, you know? Like, I, I get it. He's, like, there, and he's not leaving his house, but, you like, physically, you can't fight 
you know, high winds and waves like that. And so we see throughout Scripture that's one of the places God really shows how different he is than us, how other and how powerful. We see this in the beginning of creation, that he, that he moves the waters, right? And we see that he calms Jesus. We see him calming storms. And that's when people really get their minds blown. Holy cow, this guy calm nature. He has control over these things we don't have. We, we kind of think we might have control over people or ourselves, but this is like way out of our hands. And so God is going to use this great symbol that he uses over and over. He's like, I'm going to actually control water and the weather in order to rescue you. And a thing you can't, you can't do. So he does. The angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, so this angel or this cloud, wherever this is, withdrew and went behind them. So now the cloud moves from the front of them to behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. This is the part of this story that I don't remember when I, when I think of this story. In my story, the army pulls up, the sea moves quickly, People run across, and it's done. But we're now in a moment. These people are terrified. Moses has told them, stay still. God will fight for us. And now they have to sit while a cloud divides them. It's the cloud. And the angel divides them from their enemies. So just steps away is slavery, death, and water. They're, they're just sitting there. Now there's like this patience in that. And they don't have to wait very long, but what, what a great reminder, huh? The patience often, it does not happen quickly, right? Deliverance doesn't often happen very quickly. Well, they're there. They're waiting. And then it happens. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, all the night, the sea drove back with strong east wind and turned into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with a wall of water on their right and on their left. So God, using the wind, dries the land and parts the waters and God's people walk through, just as he said. This is incredible. Like the, it's the reality for a second think. Like, could you imagine how you feel if you're stuck... There's no way out. I know God said he's faithful, but it seems to be there's no way out. I'm, you're preparing yourself. I'm going to be a slave again. I'm going to have to go back to that thing that I thought. The emotions of like, we were just free. And we're going to go back. And the winds start blowing and the water starts moving. There actually is a way out. But not only is there a way out, God keeps working here. The Egyptians pursued them and all the Pharaoh's horses, all of them, and all the chariots, all the horsemen followed them in the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. So now they're confused. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they were, had difficulty driving. The word jammed is actually the same word as hardened, that he used to harden hearts. So he hardened the wheels. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. He, these are the people also who just experienced ten plagues of God showing his power over all their gods and all of their people and all their things. And they realize 
their God is still fighting for them. And they're stuck in the mud between two walls of water. And this is interesting in this passage. The word Lord they use there is the first time they actually use God's name. Before, it's like the Israel, Israelites' God, their God. Watch out for their God. And here they actually say, Yahweh is fighting for them. So when God says they're going to know me, they're going to know my glory, they, they call him by name. He's fighting for them. We've got to get out of here. We can't beat this God. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over this sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Remember, this is all of them. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. This is where we get, this is kind of where we get the connection to this all. Keep saying all of them, 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 all of them did not survive. God did not just make a way for his people to escape. He just eliminated the enemy. Their old master isn't like a distant, I hope we don't see them someday at like a family reunion thing. <laughs> or I hope we're not wandering in the wilderness and we run into some Egyptian chariots. It's, they're done. Not only did he make a way, but he eliminated the enemy. They're free. The enemy is gone. But the Israelites went through the, the sea on dry land with wall of fire on both sides. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and trusted Moses their servant. What a story. They're cornered. They have no way out. God comes through, makes a way. And not only makes a way, but puts an end to the enemy. So it's, it doesn't even have to linger for them. They don't have to think, will we ever get pulled back there? Or maybe we should go back there. Maybe it's better. Because later, actually, we see as they're in the wilderness, this happens again. They get whiny and grumbly, and they, they're suffering, and it's hard. And they say, we should go back to Egypt. It was so nice there. There was, like, tasty food. All this great things. You're like, what are you talking about? This like they want to they want to go back to their old master again, because right now what they're in is hard. God, may, there isn't one. Don't go back there. There isn't one. We get the opportunity, I think, as Christians to not only celebrate this story, but celebrate the story of the enemy, Satan, has pursued God's people, even till they're in exile after this. And they're crying out to God. We see in Isaiah, we see in the Psalms, God, like you rescued us from our other masters in Egypt, rescue us from these, please, please. And all they want is to kind of be out of that situation. And God says, I'm going to pull you out of all situations. I forever will make a way and forever eliminate the enemy of enemies. It's incredible, right? Jesus comes. He does miracles, shows his power like we saw God do in Egypt. Jesus is kind of cornered. Satan thinks he has him. He's put on a cross. He's crucified. He, he goes in the grave. Jesus' disciples say, what did you do? Why, is it, why are we here? They deny 
Jesus. They'd say, we don't believe in. They're, they're questioning, why did you bring us here? Just, you just bring us here to bury us in graves here, right? They're having this, we, and God merges out of the tomb, crosses over to the other side. He's now defeated death. He's not only made a way, he's atoned for sin, so Christ died so we wouldn't die. So he plowed away so now we can cross, but he also has eliminated the enemy. Death is no longer your master. So we not only now have to worry about actual other people, other creation ruling over us, we now are free from all of that. We, are, we cross over. So my hope now is, as we kind of wrap up here, is to walk you through a couple of things that have been really encouraging to me and convicting to me as, we've, as I've walked through this passage. I hope we like to say that, uh, or we like to think, this is kind of our, our metric for how do we, what are we doing or why are we doing things. We talk about the gospel in community on mission. That's what hope is. And so we believe the gospel, Christ is, and he died on a cross and rose, that we have life in him, that because of that we live differently. We believe that should be done in community with, with other people so that you're not alone in it. Uh, that's why we've gathered not right now, this morning, while you're here, so that we have people to do this with, that we can encourage one another in the gospel. And uh, that God, that's how God created this, to, for a church to be together. Um, and also, that we don't just gather and hang out ourselves, but that we're on a mission to move to bring justice, to bring life, to, and to bring that great, great news to other people that uh, the stuff they're suffering and now there's a, there's a bigger battle, a bigger war that has been won. And so I want to just hop through those. This is how I often frame myself when I'm just studying Scripture, I think. What does this passage have to say about the gospel and about other people in my life and the community and, and what mission is this giving me? First, I want us just to um, understand that we are these people. We're the we're in the, great, the greatest exodus. We're delivered people. This is what Jesus tells us. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. We stand on the other shore looking back through the work that Christ has done. And we can say, that was death and slavery and now I am I have life, which changes everything, if that's how we live. We see in Romans, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ has raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him, or us. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So now we have been freed from the daily task of fighting the battle to beat death and, and fighting the battle to try for approval and fighting the battle for comfort. I don't have to spend my day working hard so that I can have comfort, thinking that that uh, is life when actually it's slave, I'm enslaved to that. I, I'm controlled by my desire to want people to like me. I can step away from that. I have life in God who approves of me and who loves me. And now I have freedom to, to do great things, to take great risks, to do things I can't handle because I know God has us. That there's a war that has been won and that we now are a people in the wilderness, like God's people, walking to the promised land, knowing things will all be made right one day. And our job right now is to suffer well and gather those to say, did you hear the news? 
We're headed to the promised land. You should come. God made a way through the, through the sea. We do this actually in baptism. So the symbolism that happens in baptism is that you go into water and you come out as a way to proclaim to all of us there's been a change in your heart, in who you are, kind of an outward way of showing that internal change. So we, we literally go into water and come out of water. It's very Red Sea-ish of us. And we proclaim to everyone, this is who I am. I'm now a different person. Almost as if God, in that Red Sea story, started new creation again. He moved water, and then there was new land, a new people, right? That we're not on a new journey. And now as Christ, we are a new creation. And so we proclaim that in baptism. I'm going to plug baptism since I'm here. You should get baptized. What an opportunity, right? If you have not had the opportunity to get baptized, we're doing them. Just a few weeks. We have some classes you can come to to learn about it. But we love this. We get the opportunity to go to a park together, go into a lake and come out. And we celebrate together that you are a new creation. That, that you're victorious. All right. Done with that. If you're interested, check it out. We'd love to have you there. Email Tim. Community is so important in this, and I think we saw this in the passage where, uh, thankfully, Moses is there to say, hey, 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 uh, let's not forget who God is. Remember the cloud that's right here? That's God. He's still with us, and he has been faithful to us. Remember Joseph knew he'd be faithful. He's with us, kind of. It's bones. And uh, we need these people in our lives. One of my, a favorite song of mine uh, is also an old spiritual that was written, and it was written actually to Mary in Scripture. Mary, whose brother Lazarus, Lazarus has died. Do you remember the story? Lazarus dies. They call on Jesus, say, Jesus, Lazarus has died. Jesus is really close to him, and he weeps. This is the Jesus weeps, wept passage, the short, the short one that you memorize as a kid, because it was two words. So Jesus wept because Lazarus, his friend, has died. And this song is written to encourage people as if, as if they're sitting with Mary and saying, Mary, oh Mary, don't weep. Don't you mourn. Oh Mary, don't weep. Don't mourn. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh Mary, don't you weep. Did you forget? God killed the enemy. Your brother's dead, but did you forget? He killed death. Death can't hold him anymore. Don't forget it, Mary. They're calling back to the story of, of the Red Sea. Reminding Mary forget, who, remember who our God is? He's killed the great enemy. Like as, as a community, this is something we have to, I need, a, I need someone to sit by me in my car and sing me songs. Oh, Drew, don't weep. Stop whining. Stop complaining. You forget? God killed death. You're free. You're, you have life. You've crossed over into life. Why are you complaining? Like, you have to sit two more minutes in traffic. Chill out, man. God destroyed Satan. Like, how good is this? I don't have that, if any of you are interested, though. <laughs> DrewHopeCC.com. I'll tell you, I don't know if that's an assistant, I guess. I need an assistant. The other thing that I've noticed, we have a friend, in, um, a friend, we have a friend who lives with us, and she is really into NBA basketball. And I have never been into NBA basketball, but now kind of am because it's, it's showing on our TV while she's watching it. So I'm learning about it, kind of making fun of it, but learning about it. And one of the things now they're in playoffs, getting excited, and this, this phenomenon where teams wear 
these shirts that are like their motto, right? They come out together. They got the shirt. This is what we're all about. The, on the, on the uh, right there, we have the, the Cavaliers have the whatever it takes shirt. The Celtics right now have this uh, cuss cries shirt. I don't know <laughs> what their thing is. A terribly designed. Like hurts me to see, to see us rise, I think. But whatever. Ugh. That's a whole nother thing. Um, they, right, they wear these. They come out and they're like, Warming up and all the crowds wearing them. You can buy them on their website. I see friends posting, like, everyone's a LeBron fan, so everyone's posting whatever it takes, whatever it takes, uh, which sounds kind of like, is there, like, illegal stuff going on? Or, like, are you breaking rules? It seems like. Um, but, they, but they wear these shirts, right? The point is they wear these shirts because they're together in this, right? This is why we need community, because I need to come together and I need to sing hymns on Sunday morning that remind me that, Pharaoh's been drowned in, that Christ is the way, and that God loves me and cares about me, and that he's still with me, right? I need cool shirts like this. I need a, I need a Pharaoh's army got drowned shirt. Oh, man, I would, that would be pretty sweet. That's why we need each other. I think this is, the church has the opportunity to remind each other of this good news because there's days you're going to say, did you just bring me here to kill me, God? And we need one another to do that. And finally, as we think about mission, um, we see that the rest of this Romans passage, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Pharaoh doesn't get to tell you what to do anymore. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. That's the phrase I want to try to use more <laughs> When I'm like, oh, I should do this. Uh, it's probably not good, I think. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm an instrument of wickedness. That kind of shuts that down for me. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Right? We've crossed over and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You get to be an instrument of righteousness in your life, in your friend's life, your family's life, the people around you. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. Pharaoh is no longer your master. We, we, need, we have to stop calling Pharaoh back up. Hey, I know you're not my master, but what would you like me to do? One of the ways I see this is in how we believe, how we see suffering, I think is an incredible opportunity for our mission in our homes and workplaces and with family. The way we suffer as people of God uh, can proclaim the gospel to people. This is Peter uh, N. says this about this passage. God is calling people out from one type of existence to another, from a deathly existence to a life. This process is one of salvation, and in the end it's God who battles for us and defeats the forces of chaos that wish to harm us. This sort of theological grasp of the significance of Exodus will keep us from doing this, from calling my bad hair day that may happen to be a... Pr- that it may happen to be a personal Egypt. And any person we don't happen to like to be Pharaoh. It should also keep us from getting disappointed in God when our expected deliverance does not come. Even more profound examples of Christian suffering are not Exodus situations. This is really important and really convicting for me. The fact that we, are, uh, that we like to make all situations uh, and us and them, and we like to make other people pharaohs, right? That person is a 
is an evil tyrant. And they should be killed. I hate them. I wish something evil would happen. I wish they could just get out of here. This situation, this suffering that I'm in has to be Egypt. Why isn't God rescuing me like he did in the Red Sea? The Red Sea story is a story of deliverance. And for us, our Red Sea is our, is our deliverance, our exodus, our salvation. And we have that. Christ has died and rose and we have salvation. And so to, to put every situation where uh, things aren't going well into the category of why isn't God delivering me from all things, as if my expectation is God should make all things happy and awesome, it isn't, isn't realistic. It actually isn't biblical. God has called us. He's rescued us through the Red Sea. He's rescued us through Christ, through the cross. And now we live in the wilderness, gathering people till we get to the promised land, till things are made right. Giving an opportunity to all of those around us to see the hope that is in Christ. And, and in my life, the most powerful moments of seeing the hope that is in Christ is seeing someone who is suffering well. So I'm going to share with you uh, about someone here at Hope. Actually, not at Hope. Um, Sean Jurgens, Christy Jurgens, uh, Sean's an elder here at Hope. His mother, Debbie, um, has had leukemia now since 2006, I believe. Yep. She's undergone different treatments and things, and we're following her through her Carrington Bridge site, and we get emails from her, and met her, and, you know, and she just shares like, how she's doing. We're praying for her. Um, and every time she writes how she's doing, uh, she expresses this. Understanding that she's in a battle right now, that's really hard, but understanding that her, the victory has been won in the war. And so I want to just read it to you. I, um, yeah, let me just read this to you. This is one of her updates just from this last week. This is wisdom from Debbie. Listen carefully. Dear family and friends and prayer warriors, we've made our trip to the U today for my biopsy. We have some results. We know the cancer is still present and it's growing. My oncologist feels that the current chemo drug is no longer effective. We're waiting on more test results, which should come in a few days. This will determine that the next, what the next treatment will be. Okay, listen to this from the book of Debbie. I know whatever the challenge will be, the Lord has promised to never leave me or forsake me. There's always a cloud. There's always fire. Always with you. I am a winner with Jesus. Right, Vivian? That's what she says after this exclamation point. There's Vivian. Who's Vivian, right? She's got some people around her. Thank you again for praying for me. It means so much. Know that I pray for you also, that you would have great faith. May you be blessed. So many things about that that are encouraging. Um, but I emailed her to say, is it okay that I do this? I don't know how public you want your fight, your battle to be, whatever. Um, and she's... Of course. So she says, I want to read that to you because it also speaks to this. Hello, Drew. I am honored and I am so humbled in your thoughts as you consider to use my cancer journey as part of your sermon. I've been given a trial on this earth and it has brought me, uh, given a trial on earth to bring me closer to Jesus. And I believe too used to share my faith of Christ with others. My friend Vivian, there she is, we're going to learn about her, is at my church in Hutch. Now, you know they're from Hutchinson when they call it Hutch. That's like a, I love that. So Vivian, uh, she deserves all the credit for I'm a winner in Christ. She always says that. In my life or in my death, Drew, my victory has already been won. 
I often refer to James 1, 2, and 4 as my Bible verse. Thank you. Be blessed. Debbie. Oh, Debbie. I'm like crying in my office getting this email. So Debbie refers to this passage. This is what she refers to each day as she fights this current suffering in battle. And she could make a decision to say, have you just brought me here to kill me? You just brought me to Hutch? Dig my grave and die here? She says, I have victory, and so I, I, have, I have life now. I have life in me. So I'm going to use that as opportunity, as she says in here. I want more people to know me. She's thankful for her cancer because it has helped other people know Christ. Consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of any kinds, not just you can get through this, consider it joy because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may mature, complete, not lacking anything. That suffering is an opportunity for us to cling to God, to be reminded that he will give us more than we can handle and he will fight for us. Remind us of who should get the glory. God. When I'm, when I'm sitting in my car in the Cub parking lot, which is nothing, it's, I shouldn't even, it's not even suffering, I should go, oh, this is bad. God, I need, I need you again. Good reminder, I always need you. You're victorious in Christ. So you can live as you have won the war as we fight these battles around us. What a way to show people the hope that's in Christ. A couple things I want you to think about as you kind of head out today. First, we cannot forget that God has made a way. Do you actually believe that you need help? It's okay. We all need help. Do you actually believe, though, that you need help? Can you accept help? Do you trust God's saving power? Today could be the first day you say, I actually believe that I need help. You can let go of that and, and trust and let Christ enter your life. How do you remember that God has made a way and killed death? Who do you have that reminds you of that? How does that work in your day each moment so that each moment comes as a filter through that life and not through death? Who are those people? And the war has been won. So how is God calling you to bring the news of hope and freedom to others? How could, how could just in the way we suffer this week bring hope to the people around us? Let's pray. Lord, you're good. So good to us. And you're with us. You do not forsake us. And you have made us victorious in you who are victorious. I ask that you would give us, a spirit would enter us. It would give us great hope and joy as we suffer and that those around us would see that and that we would have the opportunity to share the hope and gather others to say we're on our way to the promised land. Death has been defeated. God, that we would be those people. Be really good to us. I pray you bless each person here today as we move, move out of this building and into our lives and our work and our families and you'd use us to help others know you. And I, and I thank you for the blessing that is Debbie and all the Debbies and all the Vivians. And I pray that you would give us more of those people to encourage us. Praise your good name. Amen.